0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to the Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we have New York Times best-selling author and therapist, Lori Gottlieb. Lori's new book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and is about her life as a therapist as well as what she learned from going to therapy herself. It's a beautiful look at humanity through the lens of therapy and connection. We're giving away a copy of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone over on our Instagram page. So make sure you're following us at at the Stacks Pod on Instagram. This giveaway ends on Tuesday, June 18th, 2019. So go look for the post with the cover of the book on our Instagram page. Again, our handle is at the Stacks pod. You can find the rest of our social media accounts, plus everything we talk about on today's show in the show notes. Remember, if you're looking for a book recommendation from the Stacks, email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com and we could give you a personalized recommendation right on the air. Just send us your name and what you're looking for in a book and be sure to include a few books that you you've liked or a few books that you haven't liked so much so we can find the perfect book for you. Email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com. If you love this show and want even more, check out our Patreon page and join the Stacks Pack. That's our community that gets you inside access to this show. You can join our virtual book club, find out guests in advance, get the inside scoop and a whole lot more. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and check it out. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, would you take a moment to rate and review the show? It goes a long way to helping us reach new audiences. Okay, now it's time for you all to meet the wonderful Lori Gottlieb. All right, everyone. Welcome back to The Stacks. Our guest today is psychotherapist and journalist Lori Gottlieb. Lori is the author of a New York Times bestselling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, which is being adapted for television by Eva Longoria. Lori also writes a weekly column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. You also may have seen Lori on your television as she's appeared on CBS This Morning, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and a whole lot of other places. And now Lori's here with us in the stacks. So welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited. Congratulations on all your success. Now let's talk about your life. (laughs) So aside from all of that professional stuff, can you tell us a little bit about you? I know from having read your book, you're a mom. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew
1: up in Los Angeles. I'm a native. You are.
0: I am. You're like a unicorn.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny for me, LA is sort of like Mayberry where I walk down the street and I see people from elementary school or high school. So I don't think I'm a unicorn, but for people who didn't grow
0: up here, I seem like a unicorn. Totally. I mean, I, I've lived here seven years now. I'm from Northern California, but I still feel like when I meet someone from LA, I'm like, really? Whoa. <laughs> Have you ever lived away from LA? I have.
1: Um, I went back East for college. I went up North for school. So I've lived in other places.
0: Okay. But this is home. This is your, this is your place. Yes. I love that. Okay. This is a, maybe a basic question. Can you tell me the difference between psychotherapy and therapy?
1: So psychotherapy is therapy. There are many different kinds of therapy, right? Um, there's talk therapy, okay. uh, which I guess is what you're referring to with psychotherapy. There are so many different modalities. There's um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. There's DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Okay. Um, you know, there are there are so many modalities. Um, right. So I practice
0: talk therapy. So talk therapy is like what most people associate with going to their therapist and talking about their day. Yes. Okay. Okay. Because I've heard the term psychotherapist used. And I never knew. I was like, is that a different kind? It sounds like really intense.
1: Oh, I think maybe what you're thinking of is psychoanalysis. Maybe. Um, so psychoanalysis is um, where you go. Traditionally, you would go every day, I okay. believe. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how it's practiced now because I don't practice it. That's like major commitment. Right, right. And it's more of the the therapist being kind of a a blank slate and you doing most of the talking. That That isn't what psychotherapy is.
0: Okay. And so in your practice, what you do is more people come, they tell you about their problem that they're having. They have a presenting problem, I think is what you call it in the book. And then you help them figure out what's really going on.
1: Right. It's very interactive. And I think what we do as therapists is we hold up a mirror to people and help them to see their reflection in a way that um, they may not have. Mm-hmm. So, so many people, we all have blind spots, right? And right. so many of us get in our own way and we don't realize that we're getting in our own way. So people come in and they're like, help me change these other people in my life. Right? <laughs> and we are here to help you see what your role is in that situation. So you can make changes and navigate things more smoothly.
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Maybe you should talk to someone. It kind of starts as – well, it kind of starts in a lot of places, which you don't actually get to the beginning until kind of halfway through the book, which is that you're supposed to be writing another book and you have a breakup with your boyfriend and you're in a transitional period in your life and you want to have someone commiserate with you. So you're like, your friend's like, you should go talk to someone and you go to a therapist. In addition to all of that, we're also learning about you as a human and how you got to be a therapist. And then also some of your clients, there's like four that are really centered. So you kind of like weave these three and a half ideas together. How did you come to make the book in this form? Like, Why not do a pure memoir or a pure introducing us to your clients or something like that?
1: Right. This book has a long history. Yeah. Um, originally, um, I had written this cover story for The Atlantic called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. Um, and the subtitle was Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods." Oh. It went crazy viral. Um, everybody wanted me to write that book for an obscene amount of money. And I say that only because I said no. Right. Which seems – you know, who would do that? Right. Especially me as a single parent and right. you know, I'm head of household and and how do you how do you say no to something like that? But I was just starting out as a therapist and I felt like even though I didn't know it at the time, I was really searching for meaning. I wanted to do things that only felt meaningful to me. And mm-hmm. eking out another book about helicopter parenting did not feel Meaningful in the way that I wanted my work to be, um, and so, but I still had to write a book, um, and because uh, I, I needed to pay for my internship that I was going through, right. and I, I thought, well, I want to write about the adults, so I'll write about why our obsession with our own happiness is dooming us to unhappy adulthoods, but the, but the minute I started to try to write that. I realized I just couldn't. It, mm. Every time I would sit down, I would just be paralyzed because I felt like it wasn't capturing what I was actually seeing in the therapy room as a new therapist, the richness of life, um, you know, the, the real struggles that people are having, and the ways that they grow and transform. I think so many times people think of therapy as people come to complain to you all day, mm-hmm. which is not what therapy is like. Mm. There are so many... Heroic moments, beautiful moments, poignant moments, funny moments—you see tangible change in people, and I wanted to write about that. But I was under contract to write this other book, by the way, for not a lot of money, and <laughs> <laughs> which made it even worse. Um, and um, you know, and, and that's my struggle—is my agent at the time said, "If you don't write this, you already said no to the kid book, and if you don't do this one." um, you're not going to be able to write another book. And so I was sort of like the, I I was filled with shame. And I was like the the closet gambler who gets dressed for work every day and, and kisses their family goodbye and then goes to the casino instead of the office. My (laughs) casino was Facebook, um, or writing these fabulously witty emails to my boyfriend at the time. And eventually, um, I do cancel the contract, not knowing what I'm going to do next. But then one night I really start writing about my experience that I had just gone through in therapy and helping people as I was going through my own upheaval in my own life after this shocking breakup. And I just started writing about it. And so I thought, well, I'm going to follow these these four patients. But in the book, there's a fifth patient. And that fifth patient is me because I felt like, how could I write about them and all of their vulnerability and then hide the fact that I was going through this major upheaval in my own life? It felt disingenuous to do Mm. that so we follow four people as they go through their therapy and there are other people as well that you read about in the book and then we follow me as i go through my own therapy and come out the other side
0: can you write a sequel about wendell going to therapy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to know what Wendell's like in therapy because I was just I – mean, that's your therapist. And I was obsessed with him because he just seemed like so quirky and great. And like I just was like, I wonder what he's like when he goes to therapy. You
1: know what's so funny about that is I've been on book tour and so many people have come out and talked about the fact that they're in therapy. And those people include when I was on Fresh Air and Terry Gross talked about her therapy. Oh, my gosh. I was like, I want to see Terry Gross <laughs> in therapy. Um, you know, Katie Kirk talked about it. I'm not name dropping. I'm right. saying this because – Scott Simon did because all of these people are very public people and yet the more people who talk about it, the more normalized the right. experience of struggling and getting through your problems and talking to somebody about them. It just, it seems so much more accessible
0: when people say, I do that too. Right. Right. Well, so I've never gone to therapy before, but reading your book, I was like, I want to go to therapy. Like I want to, I want to become a better human and like learn about myself and all that kind of stuff. So I definitely understand that. I do have a, well, I don't know. This might be kind of political, but not intentionally. I know that therapy can be expensive. How do you, are there resources for people who might not have health insurance or like might not be financially stable where they can get therapy for cheap or free? Do you, right. Do you know?
1: Yes, of course. Okay. Um, that's such a
0: great question.
1: So I think that just as with physical health, our mental health um, system, in terms of how expensive it is and how hard it is for it to get access, right. um, is really a challenge for people. So it's our whole healthcare system. It's not just our mental health care right. system. Um, that just like with our physical health, there are low cost clinics. Mm-hmm. There are um, you know lower cost options. There are Um, resources that you can get, um, you know, through your health insurance, um, where they're in network. The problem is a lot of people who are in network are not necessarily. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people have a hard time making a living being in network. Mm. Um, and so a lot of therapists aren't in network. I'm not in network. So I do submit every month. I give people a super bill and they submit to their insurance companies and they get reimbursed for out of network. Um, and I do have a sliding scale. So there are some people who are on a sliding scale and they're paying way below Right. Uh, you know the market rate for therapy, um, but you can't do that with everybody. Right. So I think it's a big issue, and it's something that I hope we can change in this country when you know we figure out our country seems to have such a hard time figuring out the healthcare system. Right. And mental health is
0: a big part of that. Right. Yeah. And I think I think it's hard. Like our country, like you said, has a hard time with health and like taking care of our citizens. But also, I think culturally, admitting that something is wrong in your mind is something that is seen as a weakness, like admitting that you're upset or admitting that you have anxiety or admitting that you're really struggling with your grief or whatever that is. People take pity or something on those folks. So it's harder to come forward and say, I need help. Whereas if you break your leg, it's like I literally can't walk right now and someone's going to say, go to the doctor. What are you doing? But if you're, you know, having depression or something, people don't always see that.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's true, and I think that that's a that's a problem with access too. Is yeah. is that I think if we feel like something is wrong with our bodies, um, you know, we will go to a doctor, um, and get it checked out. But if we feel like something is feeling off emotionally. So many times what happens is people say, well, I have a roof over my head and I have food on the table mm-hmm. and you can't really see what's wrong with me, you know, because right. you can't really see depression. Right. You can, but you can't. Right. Um, or anxiety or, you know, why am I still grieving after five years? Right. Well, that's normal. Right. <laughs> you know, but if you're having trouble functioning, you do need help. Right. Um, so I think it's really hard for people to say, you know, I need help without minimizing it.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's a really challenging It's it's complex and it comes from years and years of you know also lots of cultures don't even acknowledge that depression is a thing. There's other words for it, like you know, or saying that someone's just they're just really stressed out or they're really tired. And it's like we don't even oftentimes have the vocabulary to recognize what is going on. So I think that that's one of the nice things about your book is when I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, this seems like something that I would enjoy doing. Like this seems like something that I could get a lot out of because. I can only imagine that it would help to talk to someone, even if you're having just like a regular day, you know, like there's parts of your book where you talk about people come and asking you for help, like to make a decision or just to talk through one of the gals, like, should I go out on a date with this person? And that's not the end of the world type information. That's not huge grief or huge, that's like day to day, but it, the idea of having someone who could help you and work with you to figure out what you what's going on.
1: Well, yeah. So that woman that you're talking about, she didn't just come in to find out. You know, no, no, was no not no. a day with someone. She was she kept having trouble meeting men who were wanted a relationship with right. her, and she was you know in her twenties, and it was a great time for her to figure this out. Which right. is why do you keep choosing men who will disappoint you? Why <laughs> do you keep choosing men who are who are going to hurt you? You know, why do you keep choosing men where it's going to end in heartbreak every single time? Right. And she even started dating someone from the waiting room. And she <laughs> thought that was a step up because she said, well, at least he's in therapy. Right. Um, except that he was coming with his girlfriend, which right. she didn't know at first. But she had, you know, almost like, um, you know, a sixth sense for right. these people because of something that she was working out from her history. Right. And, um, and that really changed her life when she started realizing, oh, I'm the one who's choosing these people Mm. and there's some pattern going on here and I need to change the pattern.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious about this. Has your practice and you practicing as a therapist, has that changed a lot since the book has come out? Because in the book you kind of talk, there's parts where you talk about um, encounters with your clients outside of, like you run into someone outside of therapy and just like the idea of like, you don't want to share... you people don't want their therapists to share too much of themselves. And you've obviously shared a lot of yourself in this book. So has it changed how you relate to your patients or have you like seen an influx of patients or people being like, I don't want you to be my therapist anymore. It's interesting because I was a journalist
1: long before I was a therapist and had I known, you know, had I looked into the future and said, I'm going to be a therapist one day, I might not have chosen to write so much (laughs) about myself. Um, but it's out there. (laughs) And, and that's the thing about the internet is it's all out there. There's nothing creepy. It's, it's, it's simply life. right? Right. Right. Um, and I think that, um, when I wrote this book, I wondered how people would React, but what I say at the beginning of the book is that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. That right. I don't think people want to go and talk to a robot; they want to go and talk to a human. Mm. And my humanity is my greatest tool because I've lived life. Um, that doesn't mean that I share my life with my patients. I don't at all. But um, you know, the fact that I have lived life, I think, is 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 a sign to people that I might be able to help them better.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's true. I was like, I want to go to her. <laughs> she seems really helpful. <laughs> um, in the book, you quote a lot of conversations with your clients. Are those – do you take notes during and you actually are quoting them or are those more like re- from recollections? So I didn't
1: write about anybody that I was currently seeing okay. because I felt that um, that would be a conflict of interest, okay. that I couldn't really go into a session and then while I'm doing my chart note think, oh, now I'm going to put this in a book. Mm. It, it felt um, – it felt the lines would be very blurred there. Mm-hmm. So um, so this was all, um, you know, my my retelling of my experience with okay. that. Okay, interesting. What
0: would you say is the most surprising response you've had to the book? I
1: think just uh, partly what you said about how many people now want to come see me for therapy <laughs> uh, now that I've bared my soul. Um, I think that the most, I would say maybe surprising in a good way is how many people have said, I see myself in these people that you Mm -hmm. write about and I want to go get help. Not necessarily with me, but just that, that, um, or I understand something about myself better. How much this book has served is almost like a therapy session Mm -hmm. for people that they've learned, even if they're not interested in going to therapy, that they've learned so many things about themselves. This book... Um it's a it's a featured book in Costco right now. Hmm. And and we always say it should be, you know, sold right next to a big giant box of Kirkland tissues and one of those <laughs> boxes of highlighters because I think it's very emotionally moving, but also people are highlighting passages where they see themselves. And and I think that I really want people to start talking about emotional well-being. Um, more openly. I want them mm. to be able to have a greater sophistication in terms of understanding themselves better. Um, because the more we can understand ourselves, the more we can live a
0: life that is more coherent with what we imagine. We won't struggle so much. Yeah. I, I take notes when I write, especially when I have someone I know is coming in. And I took a lot of notes on your book. There's a lot. There's just a lot of gems. Um, there's one character that I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, which was your character who had, uh, or your patient who had terminal cancer. Um, and that storyline was just, whew, it really, I, I just really connected. Obviously, I don't have – I mean, at least to my knowledge, I don't have terminal cancer, but there's so much of what she was going through that I really connected with. And then when you suggested doing The Unwinding of the Miracle for our episode next week, I was like, oh, well, that makes so much sense to me now because I was reading your book when we decided what book Mm. to do next. Um, But then in reading The Unwinding of the Miracle and connecting it with that part of your book, I was like, oh, there's just so much here. But that's the thing is that I
1: chose four very different people to follow. So you have – the woman we were just talking about, the one who's, you know, in her 20s and dating and dealing with that. And maybe she drinks a little too much and doesn't realize it. (laughs) Um, And then you have this woman who, you know, probably wouldn't have come to therapy had she not been diagnosed with cancer, that she was very fulfilled in her life, um, you know, in her career. And she just married, you know, the love of her life. And she, you know, had tons of close friends and very close family. And, um, she goes on her honeymoon and, and she thinks that when she gets back and she feels this like little thing in her breast and she feels like, well, maybe I'm pregnant, which is what they wanted. Right. And, um, and it's not a sign of pregnancy. It's a sign of cancer, but the doctors tell her this cancer is very treatable. She doesn't have to worry. She's going to go through treatment. She'll be fine. And that is what happens until six months later after she seems quote unquote cured, um, they find on her scan a different cancer, a very aggressive form of untreatable cancer. And she says to me, will you stay with me until I die? And I had no experience doing that. And I didn't think I was the right person for her. And I told her that, um, but she really wanted to come to me because she didn't want to be what she said she didn't really want to be immersed in, in what she called the cancer people, Uh um, which was the pink ribbons and the optimism and the affirmations on the walls. And she said, I just, I can't even be in those rooms with the affirmations. Right. And, um, it just was an approach that worked for her. And so we went through this experience together that was really profound and intense
0: and horrible and beautiful and everything in between. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that just, even you talking about it, I'm like getting emotional just thinking about it. It's just such a powerful part of the book. I mean, all the all of your patients and your story are all very powerful. But for me, I think that was the one that I was the like when we would end sections on on her and then I'd be like waiting. Like, oh, is she coming back? Is that it? Is that, like, I, there was like a few times where I was like, that can't be the end. That's not the end. Oh my God, that's not the end. There's more. There's more. Well, that, that's what I was doing in the book though,
1: is that I wanted people to experience these people the way I did, which was I don't mm. know after a session what's going to happen. Right. So it's very much... You're very much getting that behind the curtain view of, of my life as a therapist, which is, you know, when she doesn't come back, I don't know if she's died, right? There's right. that scene in the book where, you know, she's late and I think, oh my God, she died. Right. And I'm sitting there <sighs> not knowing what to do about that. And do I call her? Do I not call her? You know, right. do I call her husband? Um, do I wait? Is she just in traffic? Cause it's LA. Right. Um, yeah. Which is not the answer. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, there are, there are all these, um, you know, like with when, when, another patient in the book, John, who, you know, reveals this very sort of this mystery. I think, you know, all the patients are mysteries. I think we're all mysteries and that's what, what therapy is, is they come in with a certain story and then we find out that there's more to the story and then there's a lot more to the story. And then the story turns and there are all these twists and you don't really know. Um, and when his story has a major twist, um, I don't know if he's going to come back. Right. And I really don't know. And I don't know. He left me with this huge cliffhanger. Right. Um, that I don't know what to do with. So I
0: very intentionally wanted the reader to have the experience that I had. Mm. Yeah. And I, I also think one of the other things that at least I picked up as a reader reading your book is, and I I didn't know this for sure, and I'd always kind of thought this, but that you clearly really care about your patients. And I think that maybe there's this idea for people when they go to therapy that their therapist isn't another human, that it's like a doctor or someone who's like behind some sort of a curtain, but you can really sense that you feel strongly about the people in your book and just the way that you speak to them. And then also your therapist, Wendell, the way that, that you felt strongly towards him as well. I think that's really what makes this book really powerful is that there's like you said, that human connection between the people in the book. And I think that's really what, because the stories on their own are interesting, but that you connecting with them and you talking about, you know, how when they say this thing, the air is knocked out of you. And like that as a human, as our narrator, you're you're connecting. And I think that really lends a lot of power to your book. So I really like that.
1: Yeah. One thing that I think people don't realize maybe before they get into therapy, but they quickly see once they're in it is that it's really this rich human relationship mm-hmm. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So you're there to talk about your relationships outside of therapy, but you're also forming this very important relationship with your therapist in the room. And in fact, study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy is your relationship with your therapist. Mm. No You know, even though Um, you know, it will differ in terms of years of experience or the modality that they use. Um, What's most important is how that relationship goes. That's fascinating. And so, (laughs) you know, I really, I really feel like I, I wanted people to see that because I think so many people are afraid to go get help because Mm -hmm. they think it's going to be a very clinical
0: experience. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, again, your book, it certainly doesn't feel that way, which I think is to be applauded. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're going to transition a little bit now from your work life into your reading life. But before we do that, we have a little segment on the show called Ask the Stacks. So someone sent us an email and they're asking us to suggest some books. So I'm going to read it to you and then I'll give you some time to think about it if you need to. So today's is from Hannah. She says, my name is Hannah and I live in Denver, Colorado. I am really looking for a book to get into this summer. I'm going on a long flight to Japan and would love a good book. My problem is I need an easy read. It's not a problem. I usually start books and lose interest or get bored. So something light, fun, or really enjoyable. I never read, so I don't have any books that I love or hate. I'm 26, and I'm looking for a beginner book, but not a picture book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not into historical biographies. Um, I would more like fictional-type books – and she says, I'm not sure if that's enough, but I would really like a good recommendation. So I'll start because I, I, I got this in advance. Um, and I, Hannah, I took what you said and then I also am going to do what I want because I, what you asked for is not something that I read a lot and what I'm hearing from you is that you want a story that you can connect with and something that you will keep you engaged. So I'm giving you those things, though some of them are a little bit less light and a little more serious, but they're good. Um, The first one I'm giving you, it's kind of a classic. It's by Mitch Albom. It's called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. It's broken down in five parts. It's not very light. It gets sad. It gets really sad, but it's a super engaging read um, and it's a classic for a reason. So I think that you should check that one out. The second one I'm giving you is Trevor Noah's book called Born a Crime. It's his memoir about growing up in South Africa. It's fantastic. I've read it and listened to it and I've laughed out loud both times. Um, he's funny, so that's great. And then the third one I've not read, but I've seen it everywhere and everyone says it's great. It's called The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. It's a novel about a family where they go and they find someone who will tell them when they're going to die and then they live the rest of their lives knowing when they're going to die and it takes you, that starts in the 1960s, it takes you to the 1980s, to 9-11, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So those are my picks for you. Lori. do you have any Fun, engaging stories for Hannah.
1: I do. Okay. I just, um, I just had several in my head, and I just okay. forgot literally half of them. Oh no! But um, <laughs> here's what here's what I would suggest. Um, um, Curtis Sittenfeld has a great short story collection called "You Think It, I'll Say It," mm. um, and it is it's just these great stories. And what's great about it is if you're on a flight, um, you can just read each story and then take a little break mm-hmm. and then go to another one. But they're funny. They're, um, some of them are, um, a little bit sad, um, but they're just a great, they're addicting. You you, want to go from story to story and they're great. So I I would really suggest that. Another novel that I love, since you asked for a novel, um, a light novel is, it seems light, but it actually says a lot. Um, it's, um, it's called The Nest by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. Um, and it's, it's so, it's so funny and you follow like these, these siblings as they're trying to figure out what's going to happen to their inheritance and it's goes into all of their lives and all of the kind of, uh, the messiness of their lives, but it's hysterically funny
0: and moving and I highly recommend that. Okay. Those are awesome. Okay. We're going to move on now to Lori's reading taste. So we always start here, Lori, what are two books you love and one book you hate?
1: Oh, um, I don't have a book
0: that I hate to say. That's okay. Okay. (laughs) You're not alone in that. A lot of Um, people don't like to say that. (laughs)
1: um, So basically, if I don't like a book, I'll just stop reading it before I get to the hatred part. You know, I'll kind of be like, oh, I'm not into it. You're like, this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, So two books that I love. Um, I love The Tennis Partner by Abraham Mm. Verghese. It is the story of Abraham Verghese, who was a doctor, and when he was – training a resident. Um, this And the, Abraham Verghese was going through a divorce at the time and the resident was kind of on probation for drug use. Oh, okay. And this was his last chance to see if he could really, you know, stay away from drugs and get through his medical training. And the two of them both play tennis and they form this relationship on the tennis court mm. um, that is so moving. You don't often see male friendship depicted in this way. It is... It has stayed with me all these years. It's, it's a book that's been out for a very long time. Um, and I recommend it to everybody and every
0: single person I've recommended it to has said, thank you for recommending that book to me. I have to read this. I, you put it on the list of possibilities to do on the show and we pick something else, but I, I read cutting for stone and Mm. then I read his other book about when he was a resident and was treating AIDS patients. Oh yes,
1: right? I that one was made into a movie. I haven't read. I can't that book. remember the name of it, but mm-hmm. I read
0: after I read *Cutting for Stone*. I read that, so now I'm like, okay, I'm going to work my way backwards through his library. What's the other one you love?
1: I love a man called *Of*. Mm. Um, I just I love that sort of cantankerous misanthropic protagonist Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, when you kind of chip away a little bit where you start to see the humanity underneath, I feel like that's what I do as a therapist a lot, Mm -hmm. which is you meet people with all their defenses up and then you get to know them and you see, you know, all of the humanity underneath and you see them kind of come out of their shells and, and join the human race. And so I love that character so much. You can't
0: see Laura, but she's smiling really big. I just love it. I love it. Um, what's the last great book you read? The
1: last great book I read that I uh, just finished was called uh, Everything is Just Fine by Brett Pessel. Mm-hmm. Um, I may not be saying her last name right, but it's P-A-E-S-E-L. Okay. And um she's a TV writer, but she wrote this book about, um, it's kind of a satire about all of these parents whose kids are on the same, whose boys are on the same soccer team. And it's, this hilarious comedy of manners about what's going on with the parents and, and, and the soccer parents and how crazy mm. they get. And I'm not doing it justice, but it is, it is so spot on. If you are a parent, you will, re- even if your kid doesn't do sports, okay. you will relate to the parents <laughs> in this book. It's fantastic.
0: Wait, speaking of parenting, I just read a book. Um, it reminded me of the book that they wanted you to write first, your book about how to not to leave your kid in therapy called Small Animals. Did you mm. ever hear of that? It came out last or two years ago by Kim Brooks. Yeah. She like left her kid in the car and then she gets like reported. And then I listened to it on audiobook. I thought it was fantastic. She basically is like, we're all really anxious about being a good parent because we're forcing ourselves to be anxious about being a good parent and this is silly and our kids are suffering. And it's just really smart. And she like takes from history and it just reminded me of what you were saying earlier about the book you were maybe going to write one day.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, The New Yorker came out with a, a funny piece right when I after I had turned down the parenting book where they said another book about – another book at this point would just be cruel. <laughs> you Because know, they make parents – some of them make parents anxious, right? right? right. Um, or I think a lot of parents deal with their anxiety by just reading book after book as if there is a manual right. that will show you how to – prevent your kid from experiencing the world, which is disappointment, sadness,
0: you know, struggle. Right. And to get him into Harvard while you're at it. Right. Right. (laughs) All of those things. Um, anyways, how do you pick your next book? Like what you're going to read next?
1: I, I have books the way other, I think other women have shoes. (laughs) Um, Like they're just, I, I, I don't even know. I need, I need, more space because I just have books everywhere um, so I'm always looking for my next book um, word of mouth I read a lot um, you know so I'll read you know reviews of books um, you just hear about them they're kind of in the air um, sometimes I'll just what I, my favorite way to find a new book is to walk into an independent bookstore mm. and just browse and just see what I pick up and the booksellers are so great and they'll recommend things to you yeah. that you might not have heard of yeah do you have a favorite bookstore? I've t- I mean, basically any independent bookstore yeah. <laughs> that I walk into. I love that. Um, I do love also though, I love the Amazon stores too. Yeah. Um, Because now you can physically go into a store. The point is that I love going into a physical bookstore where mm-hmm. the booksellers are passionate yeah. about reading and
0: the independents so tend to know you as a person yeah. and they'll know your taste. Yeah, it's true. Like Having a good local independent bookstore is such a treat.
1: Oh, I love. I mean, in LA, I
0: love Diesel. I love Book Soup. Yeah. I love Romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm right by Chevaliers, so I go there a lot. Oh, they, yeah. They're right across from where I work. So sometimes I'll teach a class, I teach fitness, and then I'll go and listen to a book talk or something if someone's there in the evenings. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic. Yeah. They have yeah. a good selection. What's the last good book someone recommended to you? The last good
1: book someone recommended to me was The Art of Misdiagnosis by mm. Gail Brandeis. It's going <laughs> to sound like a downer, but. It's, it's, it's fascinating. (laughs) And it's Um, about, it's about, it's about, um, her, um, father committed suicide and she's an adult with her own kid and she wants to understand more about what happened. And I think that. You know, people say, oh, "I don't want to read a book about suicide," um, but it's really a book about a father and a daughter, and the secrets that we keep in families, mm-hmm. and how we grow into our own identity as adults. Mm. Um, so she's dealing with herself as a parent, and 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 being married, and all of those things. And um, it's so gorgeously written, mm. and it's one of those books that you can't put down. That it's 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 written in this very um, like every chapter ends with some question that you, that you want to see, well, what's going to happen next?
0: I love that. I love that. What's a good book that you've received or the best book you've received as a gift?
1: Uh, The best book that I received as a gift was called the news from Spain by Joan Wickersham. And it's again, short stories. Um, It's interesting that I've picked two of those today, Um, (laughs) but um, there, there are these beautiful stories about, this woman about I mean they're are different protagonists and different stories but the news from Spain the the story from the title, um is um about this woman who I, I don't want to give it away okay it just it's it's a very it's a great story all of the stories in there are great I was invested in every single person in this book I love that do you set reading goals for yourself um, no I
0: except to maybe like go to bed earlier. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I read
1: too much. If anything,
0: oh my gosh, what a what a great problem to have! At least for people who listen to this show, <laughs> we like that and reading too much. Um, how do you organize your books? My that's really that's a great question
1: because um, I love organizing my books. Okay, I know that sounds like a really nerdy thing, but I um, I organize them by genre. Okay, um, so I can find
0: things easily. Got it. Do you have any particular genres that you love or that you are not so into?
1: I really am not into business
0: books. Okay. Like, like when I buy business
1: books, I mean, those books that are like, here's how you can be more successful or here's oh, right. how you can be more I just um I find them really boring. Yeah. So, <laughs> no offense to people who like them. Um I just that, that isn't going to be what I'm going to get, right? What I'm going to sort of, you know, turn the pages. Right, right. On. Any favorite genres? I love novels. I love short stories. I love memoir. Okay.
0: How do you read? Ebook, physical book, audiobook? Always physical book. Always
1: physical book. Um, I love just holding the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I love turning the pages. I love being able to write in them because mm-hmm. I always like if I want to dog ear a page or I want to write down something, um, it's right there. I know you can do this with other media. Allegedly. Um, No, you can. I mean, people – because I know people who love – you know, and there are people who love audiobooks and I understand that because you can listen to them when you're driving yeah. or wherever you are at the gym. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a great benefit to audiobooks. Yeah. Um, and, and you get to hear it. You right, know, it's, it's right. really fun. Yeah. Do you read your own audiobook? I did. I wanted it to be good. So, um, Audible has a great one. I, lo- I picked the narrator. Oh, you um, did? Well, I got, I, you know, they said, here are your choices and all of them were fantastic. Um, but this one narrator, um, Brittany Presley, um, I just fell in love with her Aww. and she did such a good job on my audiobook. But personally, when how I personally read yeah. is I don't read on a Kindle, um, but people love them, you know. So um I just I'm old fashioned that way where I love having the physical book and I love having it on my shelf so I can go mm. back to it and refer to it.
0: Yeah. It Do you ever get happy. rid of
1: your books? I don't get rid of books that were meaningful to me, no. Okay. No, which is why you space have so issue. Many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have so many books.
0: And how do you like to read? Like what's like your ideal reading situation? Mm.
1: I we have this saying in our family: Abab always bring a book.
0: So <laughs> I, <love that. laughs>
1: I started that with my son when I he was that. really young, and so you know we'd always make sure when we leave the house, did he have a book and did I have a book? Because mm. if you have that time in between things where yep. you are waiting, um, you can always just pull out a book and go mm-hmm. into a different world. Mm-hmm. So so many people will pull out their phones in between mm-hmm. things now,
0: and we pull out books. Mm, I love that. That's so good. What's one of like the best books? that are some of your favorite books on psychology or therapy or kind of like your work life aside from your own, obviously. <laughs> um, I
1: love Irvin Yalom's books. Um, he's sort of the Oliver Sacks of the psychiatric world. And um, he is a psychiatrist emeritus at Stanford, professor emeritus at Stanford. Um, and he was a, a professor there for many years and he was also uh, he's 87 now and wow. he was also a, a very prolific writer. His last book I think came out maybe a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, and, uh, he wrote this book that was revolutionary called Love's Executioner where he brought us into the therapy room and into these, he did it. He structured his book very differently from mine, um, where each one is a case study, basically. Okay. But they they read like fiction, even though they're nonfiction. Mm. Um, they're incredibly moving, incredibly funny. Um, so he was really the first person to kind of break that taboo. Um, I also love Letters to a Young Therapist by Mary Pfeiffer. Okay. Um you might know her from Reviving Ophelia.
0: Mm-hmm. My um, mom read that when I was a teenager.
1: Right, right. And um, she just had a new book come out recently called Women Rowing North about sort of you know women in their later years. Okay. That was a big bestseller. Okay. Um, but Letters to a Young Therapist was basically um, her advice to younger therapists. And it's written in the format of letters to a graduate student that she was mentoring. And it's, uh, it's beautiful.
0: I love that. What's the last book that made you laugh?
1: So David Sedaris okay. always makes me laugh. So any just <laughs> anything. anything by David Sedaris will make me laugh. I also loved Amy Dickinson's Strangers uh Strangers tend to tell me things. She's okay. the Ask Amy Advice columnist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a memoir and um they're she's just so funny. She's also a, a panelist on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. Mm. So she's hilarious. Um, but in this book, it's not, it's not necessarily a humor book, but she's very funny in this book. It's very, very poignant and moving also, but, um, but it's also very funny. She made me laugh out loud.
0: Wait, I meant to ask you this before you write advice as a therapist columnist. How do you approach writing advice for people's biggest problems that they feel so compelled to write to a stranger? Like, how do you approach that?
1: So I write the dear therapist column for the Atlantic and it's, it's a little bit different from your straight advice column, mm-hmm. meaning I don't say here's, here's what you should say to your mother-in-law. Right. I, sometimes I do, but, <laughs> but, but mostly I try to, I try to approach it as if they're coming in for a first session and I know I'm only hearing part of the story right. and I can't ask follow-up questions because it's a letter. Right. Um, and so I want to help them to see it the way that I would be thinking about the problem. Here are the questions I would have. Here are the things that I would try to get you to look at. Here are the ways I would try to help you see this problem from an angle that you're not seeing it Mm. from right now. Um, And then, you know, sometimes I'll give some prescriptive advice, but often I will help them to see the problem from a different perspective that will help them to make a better decision about what they want to do. That makes
0: sense. Okay. Back to your books. (laughs) What's the last book that made you cry? I'm thinking about that because the book that we're going to be
1: talking about next time is um, called The Unwinding of the Miracle by um, Julie Yip Williams. And it's it's her memoir of what happened when she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And... Um, was it OVC? I think it's colon. colon cancer. Colon. Yeah, I was just saying, I, was, yeah. I think I have that wrong. <laughs> when colon you look at I was like, wait a
0: second. Yeah, no,
1: colon. No, colon cancer. Um, and um, and it's a it's a it's a devastating and also funny book. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll um, save a lot of it we'll for, save lot for later. For... But another one that, that made me cry was um it was by Elizabeth McCracken, who most people probably know as a novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote this book a long time ago that just slayed me mm-hmm. called Um An Exact replica of a figment of my imagination. I think if I don't, I didn't butcher that title. Um, and it's, it's about what happened when her birth of her first child went badly Mm. and, um, uh, it's devastating and it made me cry a lot, but it's also, again, she's got this like razor sharp humor. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: It's always nice when there can be a little bit of humor in the books that are really sad. I think it helps a little bit. Um, what's the last book, speaking of humor, what's the last book that brings you joy? I love Anne Lamott. Okay. Um, and I'm
1: almost, I'm almost embarrassed to say that in the sense of, um, sometimes I think that her, her fan base tends to be more sort of, um, very Christian, Mm. um, very much about God. Um, and I'm not, Mm -hmm. um, but she's just brilliant, and she
0: always makes me smile. What's a book where you felt like you learned a lot?
1: I love this book by Jerome Groupman called How Doctors Think. Mm. And especially as I was going through some health things myself, um, it, it taught me a lot about when you go to the doctor, what is the doctor thinking as you're talking, and how does that impact how they're going to treat you and mm-hmm. how you can get the best help? And it was fascinating because I had gone to medical school and I left medical school. Uh, but it was so true to everything that I had experienced. And it was very eye-opening. And I think everybody should read this book because we all go to doctors. Right. And sometimes we don't realize that how we present what we're presenting will influence the
0: kind of care that we're going to get. Yeah, My husband is a doctor. And so I sometimes will, he'll come home and tell me like stories about like this thing happened and this person said this and uh, and he'll tell me. Like, but they didn't know that like, da, 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 da. Like, you'll say that you are feeling this thing and then the doctor will be like, well, what, what symptoms do you have? And you're like, well, I don't have any. And they'll, they like can disregard it because they're so focused on like symptoms or whatever it is. Um, not that my husband disregards any of his patients. He's lovely. Love you. I know you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it being with him when he, I met him when he was in medical school. So like going through that process too, it's really, It changes the way that I think about when I now go into the doctor's office. Like, I know I can start with my symptoms. I start with my this or my that. But it's true. They think about medicine totally different than we do as a person feeling the pain or whatever it is that we're coming in for.
1: Right. Well, actually, when I was at Stanford for medical school, they had this class, which was really unusual at the time. Now, I think most medical schools have them. It was called doctor-patient. Yes. And where they teach you how to really... Talk to your patients so that you're getting the information that you need. Mm. Because a lot of times when we go to the doctor, we don't know what's wrong. Like right. we know, oh, I maybe have some vague fatigue. Right. Or I have some vague, you know, achiness. Or, um, or sometimes we don't even know that
0: something is a symptom. Right. Or how to say, how to describe what. The yes. pain is like, do you have pain? Like, yeah, is it sharp? Like, I don't know, it hurts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm in pain. I don't know. Is it dull? Is it sharp? Yeah. Is it throbbing? Is or it, like we yeah. give too many details. Like, it'll be like, do you drink? Well, I drink. I drink this week on Wednesday and Friday. And like, sometimes I have these right. kind and of down And they're like, I don't care what kind of cocktail you had, lady. <laughs> like, I will say in therapy, by the way, when when we ask people about alcohol
1: consumption, um, you know, is usually our, our standard formula is to just
0: whatever they say, double it. Yes, um, <laughs> I think that's true for <laughs> Because a lot of people doctors. underreport. report. Yeah, I think that's true for medical doctors, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, anyways, that book sounds super interesting. I have to check that out. What is a book that has had a really lasting impression on you?
1: Um, A book that I still think about a lot is called "The Short and Tragic
0: Life of Robert Peace" by Jeff Hobbs. I just bought that; it's on my mantle right now. You're kidding! I just bought it. How did you hear about it? I had it's been on my list forever. I'm very passionate about books about Black people, and it had been on my list for a really long or for a few years, and I just had never purchased it, and so I was on Book Outlet, and it's really discounted.
1: Well, so. I heard about it because I went to Yale and, um, this is a book written by somebody who went to Yale and it's about, um, Robert Peace who went to Yale, but he was a black student there. Um, and he came from this, uh, disadvantaged background and he felt very out of his element, not academically. He was very Mm -hmm. smart, Mm -hmm. but socially right. um you know he had had su- his experiences growing up had been so different from so many of the students there and he really wanted to create a different kind of life for himself um but he kept getting sucked back and it, it is it is such a you know and, and torn between these two worlds how do I support my community mm-hmm. how do I support my family and not become someone different but then also how do I live a better life for myself and my my eventual... You know, wife right. and children, and whatever right. I'm going to do, um, and um, you know these these all these questions about worth and value and mm. materialism and um, you know opportunity and access um, right. and it was and and these two and and the author of the book was very good friends with Robert and okay. and so it was about this friendship and and how you know what happened to them right. and it was it's a beautiful beautiful. Horrible, you know, just tragedy of a book. I mean, not tragedy of a book, but tragedy right. of a life, right? Um, told beautifully by the author, and um,
0: it stays with me to this day. You, you, you're gonna. I can't wait. Yeah, you got to read. This. I'll let you know. I have to say, you, any person who ever writes a book and has you talk about the book should be really happy because you're selling all of these books so well. I'm like, oh my god, my list is getting so long. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, what's a favorite book from your childhood?
1: So every Judy Bloom book was, (laughs) I was a big Judy Bloom fan. Uh Um, It's funny because people are almost embarrassed to say that. She's a really good writer. Yeah. I seriously like she's a really good writer. She also wrote a, a book for
0: adults um, that, I, that I didn't read. I her? didn't read it. Yeah, I think that's so. the only Judy Bloom book I've read. Isn't that weird? Oh, really? I only have ever read summer sisters. I
1: never read and it. I loved it.
0: I still have my copy,
1: but I can tell you that she just, um, you know, she captured that experience of childhood of, you know, all of those ways that you feel about yourself and you're not really sure who you are and mm-hmm. your parents don't really get you, but they mm-hmm. kind of do. And you love them, but also you feel embarrassed by them, right. um, and and just the social dynamics, at, you know, at that age, at uh, those ages. Right. Um, I also loved Marjorie Morningstar. I don't know that. Oh, Herman Woke. Okay. Um, it, it was W O U K. I might not be pronouncing it right. Um, it was it was like this book that I felt like I shouldn't be reading because. I felt like it was like maybe a little too mature for me. Ooh, but then it. I would like read it with the flashlight at night, you know, <laughs> under the covers yeah. and I, and it's this long book too. And I couldn't put it down, but it is, it's a classic. You should read it.
0: Were your parents into reading? No, no. I mean, they weren't not,
1: I mean, meaning they, they read books, but mm-hmm. they were, they weren't readers okay. um, at all. They okay. were just not readers. I was, I was, you know, it was interesting because they would, we would like walk, you know, a few blocks away to like the local, you know, place to go, like street where all the restaurants were Mm -hmm. to go eat at night, um, like on a weekend. And I would always want to go into the bookstore Mm. and they knew that and they would take me into the bookstore and I get to pick out two books (laughs) and it was exciting. So, but they were not, they were not, they, they read, but they were not obsessed with books the way I am. Got it.
0: Do you have a book that you would assign in school? Like if you were a high school teacher,
1: I love having kids read. I am
0: Malala. Mm. Um, I got
1: to meet her. You did. I how did cool. um, at um, the Aspen Ideas Festival mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, and she was exactly—you know how they say, "Never meet your heroes." This is yeah. not that. Oh, that's so good to hear. <laughs> um, and and I think having more kids read her story is really important. So, I mean, there's so many books I think people should read. Um, I loved when I was, when I was in school, I loved reading Lord of the Flies. Mm, I liked that one too in school. I love that because I think it's so much about, you know, social dynamics and power mm -hmm. and bullying. And, you know, it says so much about, about us personally, but also us as a society Mm. and what kids can learn about, you know, what it means when somebody gets too much power Mm. or, you know, how the dynamics are fluid and they shift. And, um, I think it's, it's a really, it's, it works on so many different levels.
0: Yeah. That is is such a good one. Um, were there any books that influenced you professionally to become a therapist or to become a journalist or anything along those lines?
1: I think the two that I mentioned before, you know, I, Irvin Yalom's books and I think Mary Piper's book, um, I think reading memoirs of people who were like, Kay Jameson's book, um, Oh, what was it called? An Unquiet Mind. Mm. Um about um she is a I th- I think she's a psychiatrist or she's a psychologist, I can't remember. Um and she wrote about how she had this like manic break and and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm. Um this was written I want to say like in the 90s. Um and it's fascinating and she's, you know, she's a clinician who's who has, you know, her her mental illness under control. Right. Um, I think those books were really interesting to me professionally. That um, you know, people um, you know, to learn more about what it's like to have bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't I didn't know what it was like in the same way until Mm -hmm. you read
0: her book. Mm
1: -hmm. Um I just love reading, I think just reading memoirs of people um and reading about life has helped me professionally.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I have two more questions for you. I'm just gonna do two more. One is what is a book? That you are embarrassed about having read. Cause I we went through the question. I should tell you guys a little backstory. We went through the questions before crossing out some that Lori didn't have answers to, skipping some, whatever. And when we got to that question, she kind of had a smirk on her face, like, I have an answer for that.
1: <laughs> so. oh, because I, you know, when I was when I was thinking about it before, I thought, I, I really there's nothing I'm really embarrassed to have read, even when I, I read something that someone would say, oh, that's so commercial. That's commercial mm-hmm. schlock. Like, yeah. I like it. And so like, if I liked that book, I liked that book. Yeah. Um, I'm not embarrassed about it at all. I think the one that I was embarrassed to kind of carry around with me at mm-hmm. the time that I read it was,
0: he's just not that into you. Mm. Um, You're the second person to say that for that question. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, it was actually a really good book. So I'm not embarrassed to have read it. I was embarrassed
0: to walk around with it. Right. Yeah. I think that that – so we talk about – I mean, we do this question all the time and I think that one of the things about being embarrassed about a book, it isn't so much that, at least for me, that I'm embarrassed about having read a book or enjoy or read a book, but that it's that I enjoyed something that when I went into it, I was being condescending about. Do you know what I mean? Like when I picked like – mine is always Fifty Shades of Grey. I secretly loved it. But when I picked it up, I was like, ugh, I'm going to read this filth and it's going to be so dumb and I'm going to hate it. And then I liked it. And so the embarrassing – stuff is coming from me and my pre- preconceived notions and like what I think other people will think about me. Not so much like a real sense of embarrassment. It's not like I fell down and like my skirt went over my head or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's like I've put it all on myself, um, which makes sense. Like it's like you don't want people to see you enjoying this book even though when you're reading it, you don't feel embarrassed. You're like, this is great.
1: But that's the thing about reading is that I think that we read things that we read for pleasure. Right? right. Right. Um, and we happen to learn things and we see ourselves in the stories and all of that. Right. Um, you know, but I think that there's, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. If you read something and you like it. Yeah. Why,
0: why is that embarrassing? Right. Exactly. I mean, like, I have no problem admitting that I love Grey's Anatomy. It's like my favorite TV show. And I know that that's embarrassing for some people. It's a brilliant TV show. It's so good. I think it's amazing. But like, that's one of those shows where people are like, you still watch it? I'm like, yeah. And they just got picked up for a 16th and a 17th season. So that's where you can find me for the next two years on Thursdays. But I think. That's not kind of the same thing about like my reading. I, my reading life is very serious. I read like a lot of serious stuff because I really like that when I read and I don't like as much fun stuff. But you know, so it's just, I I guess the point being, you like what you like.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I like a mix of things, you know, like today I've talked about everything from like suicide to like this funny book about the inheritance, Right. right? Right. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, people should just read what they want to read, just read and not something. what they think they should be reading. I right. think so many people get turned off of reading, especially kids. Yeah. You know, as a parent, I can say this, that, um, you know, when my son was younger and he loved Diary of a Wimpy Kid, uh-huh. and I was kind of like, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> then, then I, then I, lo- then I started looking at it. I was like, it's really funny. Right. Like, it was really funny. But even if I hadn't found it funny, right. the fact that he loved it, right? It's like he should
0: read what he wants to read, right? Right. And, and from children all the way up, just read whatever it makes you excited. Okay. My last question is my one that I steal from the New York Times Book Review, which is if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book. What would it be?
1: Everything I need to know I learned from kindergarten or whatever that book is <laughs> called. Um, because I think that as I remember it, um, it it talked about sort of these very basic ways of being in the world mm. that kindergartners learn mm-hmm. that maybe our president hasn't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what they taught him in kindergarten, <laughs> but um, but you know, about kindness, respect, Um, you know, how to kind of move through the world. Um, and I think that he could use a little, uh, he could use a lesson on that.
0: Yeah. That's so good. Okay. Well, next week you're coming back. We're talking about the unwinding of the miracle by Julie Yip Williams. It's her memoir about her time at uh, the unwinding of her life as she's diagnosed with terminal cancer, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get all into that next week. But before we go, anything else you would like to add, Lori? Don't think so. No? Okay. Amazing. Well, then thank you so much for being here and everyone else. We will see you in the stacks. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And thank you to Lori Gottlieb for joining us. Lori will be back next Wednesday when we discuss The Unwinding of the Miracle by Julie Yip Williams. I'd also like to thank Taryn Roeder at HMH for sending us a copy of Lori's book. Everything we talked about on today's show can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, TheStacksPodcast.com. Be sure to get your book recommendations read on air by sending us an email at AskingTheStacks at Gmail.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the fun. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirages. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.